You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Try Cora's cult favorite tampons today without joining a cult. Cora's number one selling 100% organic cotton tampons are made without pesticides, chlorine, or rayon. Whether it's a definitely flowing Super Plus day or a barely there light day, you can rest or rally easy knowing Cora's got you covered. Plus, with every purchase, Cora donates period products to people in need. Find Cora nationwide at Target, CVS, and online at cora.life. Happy New Year, everyone, and after a week off for the holidays, we are back with another episode of Across the Sky, our National Lee Enterprises weather podcast. I'm Matt Hollander, based in Chicago, and I'm joined by my fellow meteorologists, Sean Sublett in Richmond, Kirsten Lang in Tulsa, and Joe Martucci in Atlantic City. Now, before we start a new year of weather, we've got to look back at 2023. It was another year with a lot of weather in the U.S., so it wasn't easy, but we've come up with a list of the 10 biggest weather events for 2023. And by biggest weather events, what we mean is these were the 10 that stood out to us the most. Not necessarily the 10 that impacted the most people or the 10 that caused the most damage. So this isn't going to be a ranking from best to worst. We're just going to go through them in chronological order from January 2023 through the end of the year. We'll dive into the individual events in just a bit. But before we do, guys, let's take a wide look at this. If you had to pick one thing that stood out to you about the weather in 2023, what would it be? And for me, it has to be the number of billion dollar weather disasters. There were at least 25 weather events in 2023 that caused at least a billion dollars worth of damage. There actually are a couple more events that are still being assessed, but even if the number stands at 25, it's a new record. The previous record for the most billion dollar disasters in one year was 2020 with 22. Now, since Noah started keeping track of them in 1980, the average is $9 billion weather disasters per year. But in the last five years, the average has been $20 billion disasters per year. And if you're wondering, yes, they do adjust this based on inflation. So the increasing number of billion dollar disasters isn't anything new. But man, after another record-breaking year like this, you do start to wonder, how many more could we potentially have in the future? How many disasters can you actually fit in one year? Kind of scary to think about. So that's my big takeaway for 2023. Guys, what else do you have? Well, we're, we're going to talk about this, but at least here in my neck of the woods, I mean, it's hard not to talk about 2023 and not talk about all that Canadian wildfire smoke that we had in the Northeast. I mean, that was, and we'll talk about it, so I won't get too deep in it. Sean's going to lead the discussion on that. But that was like one of those things that you're just not going to forget for the rest of your lives. It was a generational type of event. Um and hopefully stays a generational type of event. We don't see more of that. We have been seeing more wildfires um, in recent decades and, and impacting more people because more people are in places where, you know, there can be more significant impacts from the weather. I mean, I always say, you know, the East Coast, West Coast, people love to live by the ocean. I love to live by the ocean here. 
but you know, it comes with risks too. So that's my takeaway from 2023. I can go next. You know, I'm going to talk about this uh, too here a, a little bit more when we get into it and kind of dive into it more, but I think it was the heat, you know, the heat was really in the, in the headlines a lot, um, how hot it was, the records that were broken, especially down in the South, um, Phoenix in particular, Arizona, you know, just some unprecedented heat that we had. Tulsa and Oklahoma, it, honestly, not as, it, it was not as bad in our area, but as you head South and you get down towards Texas, they had issues. Of course, I, I think I read somewhere too, there was 125 degree heat index value in Corpus Christi. I mean, just, you know, hot. Like, and I, and like I said, that was, it was in the headlines a lot. And I'd probably take that away from 2023. It's just June, July, August. And it just felt like it was melting. Yeah. And, and that theme, those two things really stood out to me as well. The third is, is the flooding. And there were a couple of events that really jumped out at me. One uh, was in Vermont but the other one was very localized in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, you know, to your point, Joe, I think the smoke of the wildfires is one of those, as you said, once in generational events that, you know, sticks out. You know, we've had floods, we've had heat, but but smoke and fire, that that's that's new and that really sticks in my head. But when I went back and looked at some of the data for this flash flood in, in Fort Lauderdale back in April, in the course of six hours, 19.9 inches of rain fell six hours just six hours i mean that's 20 inches of rain in six hours that is phenomenal and just kind of going through the timeline of that seeing how rapidly the the flooding onset you know they had shut down the airport uh, there were twenty thousand people without power because of a flood not wind not a hurricane just a flash flood so that's another one of those very high impact events that kind of stuck with me this year. But uh, yeah, we'll get into all of this here uh, in depth uh, in just a minute. Right, Matt? Yeah, we've kind of alluded to giving you a preview of some of the events we're going to talk about. We do have a list of 10 coming up. And you're right, Sean, it was just the free, as we mentioned here, it was just the frequency of these events. We just did not go very long before we had another big weather story in the headlines. And so we're going to go through our... 10 biggest weather stories of 2023. First, we're going to take a short break, but then we're going to get right into it. So stick around. Welcome back to Across the Sky, everyone. As I mentioned during the intro, we're going to work through this list of 10 weather events from the start of 2023 to the end. So that takes us back to January and February of 2023. And it was a tale of two winters in the U.S. On one coast, snowy. The other coast, not so much. So Joe, can you break down the difference for us a little bit more? Yeah, well, you know, I'll start off with this. You know, winter 2022-2023 started off on a promising note, if you like snow and cold. Buffalo and the Great Lakes, they had that really big snow event in November and then another one in December, but it was localized. It was just really narrow bands of heavy snow we had a really cold christmas eve and christmas day but right as soon as the ball dropped we flipped the switch and we got warm here and with the warm came lack of snow so new york city the least snowiest winter on record and records go back to the 1800s they had 2.3 inches of snow uh atlantic city international airport my home base here 
had 0.3 inches of snow. Uh, it was the least snowiest on record there. And I don't even know how they got 0.3, to be honest, because I barely even saw a flake of snow here at the Jersey Shore. But Philly had the second lowest, also at 0.3. D.C. had the third least snowiest winter. Boston was in fourth least snowiest winter. So there were just a number of places that had one of the least snowiest winters on record. And it had to do in part with La Nina, which helped to drive the storm track a little differently. You know, it, it's true in real estate. It's true in weather. It's all about location, location, location. And that's true with this low pressure center and how it goes. So typically, you know, if you're thinking about a low pressure center in the Northern Hemisphere, the Eastern side of the low pressure system typically is the warmer and wetter side because you're getting these southerly winds. And then on the western side is where you get that cold and snow. But what happened was this low pressure track a lot of times went from, let's say, the Gulf Coast up the Appalachian Mountains here. You know, the center of the low going over places like uh, West Virginia and Pittsburgh and Syracuse, New York, leaving the populated I-95 corridor wet and warm for a lot of these storms. So when, you know, if it got chilly, it was when it was dry. And then when there was precipitation around, it was wet for the most part here. And that's why we saw most of the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic with just this record low snow. So, you know, it, it was uh, quite the shame for snow lovers out there. Now this winter, different story. We have an El Nino little more coastal stormy so if you like your snow and cold we're looking at that also a great time to shout out sean and i's snow search series that we do every wednesday we're gonna give a free ad here to ourselves if you live from north carolina up to upstate new york we put this out once a week every wednesday it's a look at snow and cold threats for the following week um so check that out on your favorite local news website about a 10 minute long video and at the end sean and i do the uh, one thing we are searching for, whether or otherwise. So it's pretty fun, right, Sean? So, so. It's a great time. It's a great yeah, time. But yeah, I echo what you said. We didn't have much snow. You know, we don't get a lot of snow in Virginia, but uh, we had a trace. That's it. Just a trace. I mean, normally we only do eight or nine inches in a season. But yeah, that extended all the way down this far south. In but Richmond. then there was the West Coast. And uh, they saw a lot more than a trace of snow, especially in the mountains of California. Oh, my God gosh yeah i mean that that's the second thing here so i'm going to go from record low snow to record uh wet and record snow here um you know we did a podcast episode on this with uh daniel swain um weather west on x and twitter about this and just how wet it was in the west lake tahoe um some of the mountains there are getting hundreds of inches of snow i believe over 700 at one of the mountain passes there 700 of snow can't even imagine. Um, San Francisco was the third wettest on record here. Um, I think the big way to describe this wet um, streak that we had over the winter in the West is looking at the drought numbers. So I just pulled this up. So last December, basically the Rocky Mountains on West, 64% of that area was in some stage of drought. And, you know, you look at the end of the year in 2023, that was more than half to only 24% is in some kind of drought. That's tremendous. And the area needed this rain and the wet weather really badly because it's multi years where they've had this drought. They got it. And I think California was most impressive. I actually had to do a double take on this. So in December of 22, 97% of the state 
was in drought. This is according to the United States Drought Monitor. At the end of the year in 2023, it was a big fat zero. We were out of drought in the whole state. Incredible what one winter can do. Now, as Daniel Swain told us in that podcast that we did, we probably need another one of those kind of winters. Maybe it doesn't have to be record wet, but wetter than average to fully pull the Rocky Mountains out of drought. And, you know, I'll say this too, just to end this discussion, you know, for us East Coast folks that are listening, you know, yes, we know about drought. I feel like sometimes it doesn't feel as real, the drought, like, yeah, it's dry, but unless you're like really turning off, like, you know, you can't water your lawn or stuff. It just kind of maybe feels a little bit of a imaginary thing in the West drought is real because this is where they're getting their sources of drinking water. It's good for, it's critical for irrigation and for farming. So it's a big deal in the West and to be able to cut all that drought out was, was really impressive. And Joe, you mentioned podcasts. Well, I'm also going to mention our April 24th episode with Donnie Francis, the road district superintendent in Placer yeah. County. That was a great episode where he talked about, because that was the county that got over 700 inches of snow. Uh, I think it was near Donner's Summit. And he goes through the process of how they had to clear road after road. And as soon as one system moved out and they got the roads cleared, they had to go out again just the way he described it was great. So that April 24th episode, we're going to highlight some other podcast episodes from the previous year as well. That was a good one with Donnie Francis talking about clearing the snow in California. Uh, but that wraps up the winter months. So those were our first two events. But then the calendar flipped to March and severe weather season. And boy, did we have an event near the end of the month. Our third big weather event for 2023, the March 23rd through 27th tornado outbreak. In total, 33 tornadoes across five states, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia. And as we often see with a tornado outbreak, there were many reports of strong straight line winds, hail, and flooding as well. In total, it caused $1.9 billion of damage and unfortunately killed 25 people. Now, the most deadly and powerful tornado occurred on March 24th in Rolling Fork, and Silver City, Mississippi. It was rated an EF4 with maximum winds of 195 miles per hour and was on the ground for an incredible 59.4 miles and 71 minutes. This tornado alone killed 17 people and the images out of Rolling Fork in particular, just devastating. And guys, I think one of the factors that contributed to the high death toll with this one was the fact that it occurred after sunset from roughly eight o'clock to nine o'clock. We talk about it all the time, but nighttime tornadoes, really the most dangerous. Yeah, no question about that. And one of our other colleagues up, uh, up at Villanova, uh, Stephen Strader has done a lot of research on this regarding nighttime tornadoes in the Southeast, that there's an especially high vulnerability because it, the, the conditions come together more easily for tornado development in the southeast than they do in the plains at least at nighttime versus in the plains and because the southeast is more densely populated there's more trees so there's more stuff for tornadoes to pick up and sling around right there aren't these great big open fields like there are in the plains so the vulnerability is especially high uh, in the southeastern united states especially southward from the appalachians so as you get into central and southern Alabama, 
Mississippi and certainly getting into uh, Arkansas. These are all places that are especially vulnerable uh, to tornadoes. So th that's one of the things that they kind of stuck with me uh, with this event in particular. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, as Sean was saying, these nighttime tornadoes, uh, it, they're almost twice as likely to cause fatalities than those that occur during the daytime for obvious reasons. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's something that uh, we've talked about in Oklahoma a lot too. Oklahoma, uh, you know, it's up there as far as geographically with having these uh, nighttime tornadoes, but you do get them a lot, like uh, Sean said, off uh, just east of us. But man, those those nocturnal tornadoes, those those scare me. I'm not going to lie. That's something that makes me nervous as a meteorologist uh, every time because you just don't, you can't see them. It's like the rain wraps tornadoes, you know, it's the, the kind that just, they'll come out of nowhere. It's not those classic tornadoes that you see textbook wise, you know, and you're like, oh, there it's coming. We'll just watch it from our front porch. I mean, it's the kind that really can, it can sneak up on you and um, can be very scary, of course, and um, fatal. And hey, how about this too? Uh, you know, changes in Tornado Alley. Uh, you know, there's some research going on about places like Mississippi and Alabama, Arkansas, seeing more tornadoes over time with some of the Great Plains states like Texas, Oklahoma, you know, seeing less. So it's just, you know, as we go forward, right, if you're in deep south, um, it's areas that we are seeing more tornadoes in. Some places are seeing less, like I said, Texas, Oklahoma. Um, but it's uh, it's definitely a trend and something that we got to be cognizant of as we go forward in time. And I'm going to do another podcast shout out to our April 10th episode, Matt Laban, the chief meteorologist at WTVA in Tupelo. Now, he didn't cover the Rolling Fork tornado, but very close by. In fact, it was the same supercell that caused the Rolling Fork tornado. But this was a separate tornado that he covered, the one that hit Amory, Mississippi, it was an EF3, and he talked about the coverage, but it was part of this tornado outbreak. And he talked about his coverage. Uh, he had a viral video that went out when the, the tornado was bearing down on Amory, where he said a prayer on air. But when you see the video and you, you, you see the, the image of what he saw on radar, I'm not surprised. I think it would make any meteorologist's jaw drop. But he talked about why he said the prayer, the coverage and the aftermath of that storm. So that was another great podcast we did on April 10th. So if you want to check that one out, I do encourage you to do that. But now we've got to move on to April. And this next event didn't impact nearly as large of an area as the tornado outbreak, but it was so extreme, it absolutely grabbed our attention. And Sean mentioned a little bit earlier, our fourth biggest weather story of 2023, it's the Fort Lauderdale flooding on April 12th. Now, there were reports of flooding in multiple communities across Southeast Florida that day, but it was Fort Lauderdale that was hit the hardest. At the Fort Lauderdale airport, 25.91 inches of rain fell that day, with the heaviest rain falling during the evening hours in that short time span that Sean alluded to. Now, that 25.91 inches of rain, that was the most Fort Lauderdale has ever seen in one day. And that easily broke the previous record, which was just 14.59 inches almost 11 inches more. In fact, to put things in perspective, Fort Lauderdale usually sees about 75 inches of rain per year. So they got a third of their annual rainfall in one day. Needless to say, it resulted in an absolute mess, flooded roads, flooded homes, hundreds of stranded cars, 22,000 power outages. The Fort Lauderdale airport 
where that nearly 26 inches of rain was measured, shut down on April 12th and didn't reopen until April 14th. That resulted in about 1,100 canceled flights. Now, fortunately, and I've got to say pretty amazing when you're talking about this kind of flooding, no fatalities with this event, but it did cause about $28 million in damage. And guys, the biggest thing about this event that stands out to me is this is the kind of rain you would see in a tropical storm or hurricane, but this wasn't a hurricane. This was just thunderstorms associated with a warm front, but that front temporarily stalled out over Fort Lauderdale and the moisture content in the atmosphere that day, just off the charts. But it's still pretty incredible that their daily rainfall record now isn't from a hurricane, which is what you would expect in South Florida. Guys, you remember the pictures and videos of this one? I mean, it was just insane. I could not believe. And when I saw the numbers of how much rain, I had to do a double take. Again, like Sean said, I could not believe that much rain could fall in such a short amount of time. It really is hard to even fathom that at all. I mean, just try to visualize two feet of rain. Just visual. I mean, just look at look at look on your on your floor here and imagine just two feet of water. That's all going to come down in a day. Where is it going to go? Um, that's really hard. I mean, we don't have any any infrastructure that's going to handle that amount of rain. Um, but as you said, this wasn't a tropical system. It came over several hours. We had multiple smaller clusters of thunderstorms and even these smaller, what we call them mesoscale convective vortices to, to get deep in the weeds. These little things kind of riding along this, this front and just over and over and over in the same place. So part of it was just bad luck. Um, these other things kind of happened, just not necessarily over populated areas or over land. Uh, but this clearly a phenomenal event and unfortunately this is the kind of thing that that we think about when we talk about a warming climate uh you know even in places that are already kind of hot like florida now you're going to add more humidity and that's nasty right and then that translates into heavier rain so these are the kinds of things you got to think about yeah we're going to talk about another flooding event in a little bit that these extreme flooding events just becoming more common and boy do we mean extreme i mean to see that much rain one day is just absolutely incredible. But we're going to switch gears a little bit as we continue to move through 2023. Now we're in May, and our fifth biggest weather event of 2023 actually didn't occur in the United States, but we absolutely felt the impacts from it. It's the Canadian wildfires and the huge amounts of smoke and poor air quality they sent us. Sean, I know you saw the smoke, so tell us more about it. Yeah. And then, you know, Joe, you chime in on this a little bit later as well, because I know a lot of the, the images came out of the Northeast. But, you know, for my money, when we look at things that are exceedingly unusual that happened this year, you know, we've always had floods, right? It's always been hot someplace. But there was an exceptionally warm and dry spring through most of Canada, April and May. Uh, and again, that's something that we, we've kind of seen in a lot of the, the modeling of a warming climate, it will tend to be a little warmer, a little drier in the spring in Canada. The snow is going to melt a little bit earlier than than it will have previously. So that sets the stage for a worsening fires. I mean, they have fires every year there, right? But but the area burned across Canada uh, in 2023 was two and a half times larger than any particular year over the last 40 years. Um, and, you know, they report this stuff at hectares, which is metric. So I went back and I, I did the conversion. 
So it was 71,400 square miles that were burned, which is roughly the size of the state of North Dakota. Uh, so that's a lot, you know, and, and many of these are in very rural wilderness areas. So they just burn themselves out, right? You, you're not going to spend a lot of resources putting out fires where, where no one lives, right? Uh, but of course, here in the States, on several occasions, the winds would turn from the north, northwest, uh, and would bring in some of these dense waves of smoke into the United States, uh, leading to some of the worst air quality since uh, more stringent air pollution measures were put into place back in 2000 uh, at the federal level. And of course, some of the most visceral ones came in early June, uh, where I'd say, you know, you see some of these landscapes in the Northeast where it looked more like a smoky orange haze that you would see on the planet Mars. I mean, it was that kind of creepy, almost post-apocalyptic. Um, you know, fortunately, the wind doesn't come out of the due north very often during the summer. So I hate to say it could have been worse, but we could have had a lot more smoke come into the United States from these fires. Um, but, but I think for me, the, the scope of the wildfire season, and it also shows that if the weather happens in one place away from you, it doesn't mean it's not going to impact you. It only takes a little shift in wind direction for something very serious uh, to impact you. I mean, look, we had hazy conditions down here in Virginia. They had them in, across Tennessee, uh, Kentucky. Uh, and Joe, real quick, I mean, you're not a New Yorker. I know you're from Jersey, brother. I get that. But uh, you're not too far from New York. And I know people were kind of wigged out for a while. Yeah. Uh, no, it's okay. You know, my uh, my wife works in New York, so she was there that day. And it literally looked like Mars in New York City. Now, where we were, you know, where we work in Atlantic City here or nearby, just offshore a couple of miles, it was a very, it was that June Thursday. Can't remember the day off the top of my head. But um, it was super, like, gray out there and smelled like a campfire. Now, where I live was orange. Like, there was a line on the Garden State Parkway for everyone listening in New Jersey that it just turned orange at that point. I didn't see it because by the time I got home, it was night. But there was a line where it was orange. And it's just one of those things. Like I said, if you live in the Northeast, New England, it's just a generational type of event where you're looking out and you're like, where am I? Sean said Mars. I think that's perfect. Um, but it smelled like a campfire. Um, you know, smoke at times did get down to the surface, meaning that there were some asthma issues. Um, you know, the air quality was New York City was the worst air quality and the planet Earth at one point in time when this came through, um, you know, beating out places that usually have poor air pollution, like in India or Bangladesh or China. I mean, and that happened a couple of times during the summer here. Um, and like you said, Sean, you know, it really depends on which way the wind blows. So the worst day was that June Thursday. But, you know, there were other days into July, even August, where it came back. And it's not like smoke is new for us, you know, from Richmond, New Jersey and Northeast. We get these kind of days, but usually it's more of like a milky sunshine look to have that dark gray or and especially that orange. That's something that's that's become increasingly rare as our air quality in general has improved. And we're back on the Across the Sky podcast. We release new episodes every Monday on all our Lee News websites and wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for continuing to listen to us in the new year. You know, we saw our number of listeners grow all through 2023, and we certainly hope that trend continues in 2024. So if you enjoy listening and have a friend or family member who likes weather as well, 
shoot him a link to one of our episodes. We definitely appreciate it. We're continuing our countdown of the biggest weather stories of 2023. And at number six, it's the flooding that occurred in the northeastern U.S. on July 10th and 11th, with Vermont being the state hardest hit. Kirsten, what more can you tell us about this one? Yeah, you know, I've never visited Vermont, but that is one state that I, I've wanted to visit. Uh, it, it just looks beautiful. And I'll tell you, even through all of the footage that I was watching uh, of this, it's just, uh, it, it's, it was remarkable. Everything about this, I, I think, was was just nuts. It, it, you know, the, as far as the setup goes, there was a ridge in place. There was a short wave trough that rolled through from the Great Lakes. There was a lot of moisture that was already in place from New York and New England kind of drawn up. And so those dew points in that area were already up to around 70 degrees or so. Um, so when all of that happened, it was just kind of the perfect storm for them to see a, a significant amount of rainfall that came through. They also already had pretty high soil mo moisture content whenever this came through. So that's why you had a lot of issues with runoff. Um, but as far as uh, rainfall totals, uh, some of the totals that came up and I, I may butcher this name and I apologize. Um, but it, the highest 48-hour rainfall total um, uh, from National Weather Service that uh, was recorded, 48-hour rainfall total, let me be specific, was 9.2 inches in Calais, Vermont, C-A-L-A-I-S. If any of you guys know how to say that correctly, because I'm sure I just butchered that. Um, and then rainfall reports of 4 to 8 inches uh, within, 48 hours, within 48 hours were also pretty normal at that time. Um, the damage that they had in the area, um, you know, they said some of that damage uh, in areas was uh, or exceeded what was seen from Tropical Storm Irene back in 2011. Um, so it was it was something that definitely shook the state. Um, and uh, for good reason, that flooding can be catastrophic. Flooding can also be very fatal. Um, but it was it was quite the event that rolled through there. That's uh, mid-July. Yeah. And, you know, we just saw this uh, more flooding in Vermont and in New England at the end of December with that storm on the 17th into the 18th here. I mean, I think if you don't live in the Northeast, you might not think Vermont and flooding rain. You're probably thinking snow up in Vermont. But just because of the the way the land is, it's it's very hilly. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a number of rivers. It's a wet state. Right. So there, there is a lot of precipitation there. It, it does make it vulnerable for flooding. I mean, we've seen uh, a number of big flooding events, especially um, tropical storm Irene in 2011. Um, that that's really the big one. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's just a fact of reality and a fact of life if you're up in New England uh, for that kind of flooding. Yeah, it was another one where again the images were just incredible. You know, just like we saw at Fort Lauderdale, you just you just couldn't believe how much rain actually came down, uh, and so it. But here we go again. We're going to make another sharp transition from flooding to something completely different. But again, we're just going in chronological order here. So now we're in August and we're switching our attention back to wildfires. But I think what's most surprising about our seventh event is the location, Hawaii. You don't think of wildfires when you think of Hawaii. But sadly, on August 8th, it was the location of the deadliest wildfire in the United States since 1918. And Sean, I think the question everyone had, how did this happen? Yeah, as you alluded to, most people just imagine Hawaii is this tropical paradise. But if you've been there, you know there's a lot of volcanic mountains very close to a coastline. And in West Maui, that is the case. There's a huge nature preserve with a mountain that's about 5,000 feet tall, right? So a mile up, only three or four miles away from the coast. So the setup, 
from a meteorological standpoint was such there was an unusual cell of high pressure north of the island, and much further to the south, there was a tropical system going by a hurricane. Now, the hurricane didn't cause this. I mean, it was sufficiently far south. There was no direct impact. I mean, a lot of a lot of noise came with this initially. Oh, the hurricane, the winds caused it. Not exactly. The wind field was very, very close to the hurricane itself. But because there was a big cell of high pressure to the north and a hurricane to the south, that induced the pressure gradient. In other words, we get wind because there's a change in pressure over a distance. And in this case, the wind was coming from the east. All right. And a post-mortem analysis showed some very stable air, six, seven, eight thousand feet up. So if you start running this east wind into a mountain, okay, and then it kind of gets forced up into a stable air mass. If you think about stable air, you get slate gray clouds. There's not a lot of vertical motion, right? Everything's just kind of stuck in place. As the wind comes down the other side of the mountain, where the fire ended up being. It, it races down the mountain. So you, all of a sudden you have a hot, dry wind racing down a mountain, which is exactly what happened. They had been in a drought anyway, so it was kind of like kindling. So once this thing got started, uh, it just raced down the mountain. But this is a 60 and 70 mile an hour wind with fire racing down a mountain. I mean, this is not something you can pack up and get out of the way of. And this is why it was so devastating uh, to the communities there along the coast on the west side of Maui. And I think part of the reason why the death toll was so high is just, as you mentioned, Sean, the speed at which the mm -hmm. fire spread. And you saw it in the, in the videos that are out there. I mean, with that kind of wind, the fire was just spread incredibly fast. And I've, I've been to Lahaina uh, and it just it broke my heart to see the images afterwards because that is such a beautiful town. But one thing I do remember is that those streets are not very big. We're not talking about a big highway running through the town. So there, when everybody realized there was a fire and everybody tried to get on those roads, suddenly they were immediately congested because everybody's on those roads and there's not many lanes, a lot of two-lane roads in Lahaina. And so then you had a huge traffic jam with people trying to escape, but then they were stuck in traffic with everybody trying to escape and the fire just spreading at an incredible rate. And unfortunately, it, there were a lot of people that died in their cars trying to escape. So I think that's part of the reason, unfortunately, because of the incredibly strong winds and the way that fire spread so quickly is why the death toll was uh, so high. But once again, we're gonna take another hard shift here from fire to a whole lot of rain again. And we're moving on to the end of August now and our eighth biggest weather event of 2023, it's Hurricane Adalia. It came to life on August 26, just off the Yucatan Peninsula as Tropical Depression 10, and became Tropical Storm Medallia on August 27th. Then it started moving north, and importantly, it missed hitting Cuba. Now, obviously, good for Cuba, but with no land interaction, there was nothing left to slow down the strengthening. It became a Category 1 hurricane on the morning of August 29th. But just 24 hours later, on the morning of August 30th, it was a category four hurricane with 130 mile per hour winds and just hours away from landfall in the big bend of florida now at the last minute it did undergo an eyewall replacement cycle and that weakened it just a touch and i mean a touch five miles per hour so it officially made landfall near perry florida as a strong category three with winds of 125 miles per hour 
Now, fortunately, the storm did weaken quickly as well as it moved over North Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. And by the morning of August 31st, it was back in the Atlantic as a post-tropical storm. But the damage was done. Between the strong winds, storm surge, flooding, and tornadoes, yes, there were 12 tornadoes associated with this storm, it's estimated that Adalia caused $3.6 billion worth of damage and sadly led to the deaths of 10 people. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about this storm on our August 31st podcast. Yes, we did a whole episode recapping the storm, so I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But guys, real quick, what was the big takeaway from Adalia? I'll kind of say, you know, kind of keeping with that Big Ben, fairly unpopulated area, you know, the Big Ben's also fairly, you know, sizable, but it's only the third category three major hurricane to make landfall there, which I just thought was incredible because Florida gets does get hit with hurricanes on a near annual basis and sometimes with multiple hurricanes. So, you know, to have a major hurricane really hit for the first time since I believe it was 73 or 74 years ago, you know, is pretty tremendous. And, uh, you know, it, it's just interesting that there's still a number of places, even in Florida, that haven't seen the direct impacts of a major hurricane there um, across the state of Florida. And for me, it was just that rapid intensification. And, you know, we just keep seeing this again and again, especially in the Gulf of Mexico, where we just have these incredibly warm waters. I mean, the Gulf of Mexico has always been warm, but it's even warmer now due to climate change, those increasing sea surface temperatures. And so now, you, I think you, the, the strategy we have to take, because once again, the models did not pick up on how quickly it was going to intensify and how much it was going to intensify. I think the big takeaway is you make these forecasts, if there's plenty of moisture, there's no dry air around, there's no wind shear, and so everything else looks good, be aggressive on that intensity forecast. Go a little bit stronger than what the models say, because there's a good chance it's going to go through rapid intensification, end up being stronger and what the models indicate. So something to watch for, for the coming hurricane seasons. Uh, but moving along now, before we wrap up talking about August and summer, we've got to talk about our ninth big weather story of 2023, the extreme heat. It was the hottest summer on record globally, and we were definitely feeling it here in the U.S. as well. Everyone saw hot temperatures, uh, but it was the heat across the southern U.S. that was truly exceptional. I mean, Kirsten, where do we even start with this one? Yeah, you know, I, I think the one thing with all of this that stuck out to me was maybe the longevity of it. You know, how long, like the types of records that were being set were just how long they were seeing certain temperatures, right? I, how long Phoenix recorded 110 or hotter degree temperatures. For them in July, um, it was 110 degrees or hotter for 31 days in a row. Um, previously to that, because that was a new record that was set that was set previously, it was 18 consecutive days. So, you know, you're doubling that there. Then you have um, in Texas, College Station, they recorded a streak of 100 degree days or higher for 31 straight days in a row. Um, staying in Texas, you had El Paso that hit 44 straight days of 100 degree temps. And then in Dallas, at least 105 degrees or hotter for six straight days in a row. So that was something that I think stuck out to me the most with this past summer was just the longevity of it. It felt like people were just like, is this ever going to end? You know, because it's day after day after day um, of, of this heat for places that don't typically 
see it for that long. Sure, you know, Phoenix, yes, you're going to expect it to be hot. That's everybody expects that. It's just when you have 110 degrees for 31 days straight, um, you know, it just it it's a lot and it starts to gain attention and it starts to break records. Um, and as Matt mentioned, of course, you know, it, it it did come out that it did have as far as, you know, records began with NASA specifically. They sent out a release that said the summer of 2023 was Earth's hottest since they began their records in 1880. Um, and that, you know, overall temperatures were, you know, 0 0.4, uh, 0.41 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than they had been any other summer. Yes, of course, it was hot. Um, but like I said, I think it was just the longevity for some of us here in the U.S., um, going through all of that. And I think that was really what stuck out for me, at least, uh, this past summer. And as they say, it's not just the heat, but the humidity. I think the one stat that stood out to me from the summer was in Miami. They had 46 days in a row with a heat index over 100 degrees. For 46 days, the heat index got over 100 degrees in Miami. That is just awful. <laughs> I mean, oh, just absolutely no relief. I think that was the big takeaway. Just the, again, like we talked about in Phoenix. In fact, another podcast shout out, our July 31st episode, meteorologist Jorge Torres from the ABC station in Phoenix talked about that record streak of 110 degree days and how even for folks in Phoenix who are used to the heat, like even they were talking about, wait a minute, this isn't normal. This is out of the ordinary. And it started to have impacts and they had a record number of heat-related illnesses. And the hospitals at times were getting overwhelmed, not just with people with heat sickness, but I think what stood out to me from that podcast is when he talked about how there were people coming in with burns who had fallen on the pavement and literally got burned. And so they're actually having to treat burn victims in Phoenix from the heat. So another good podcast. If you want to hear about the heat in Phoenix, check out the July 31st episode with Jorge Torres, another good listen. But finally... We've come to our 10th biggest weather story of 2023, drought. Yes, despite the flooding we've been talking about in some parts of the country, others struggled to see rain. This was somewhat the case in the Midwest, but even more so in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. As far as the timing of this one, it really spans from the summer of 2023 and all that heat through the end of 2023. We still have ongoing drought in the Southeast. But the drought made the biggest headlines in late September and early October when water levels on the Mississippi River were so low, a wedge of salt water was working up from the Gulf of Mexico and threatened New Orleans' water supply. Now, fortunately, it didn't reach New Orleans. It got close and we caused concern. But boy, what a shift from what's been the story in Louisiana the last few years. Hurricanes and flooding. I mean, they couldn't catch a break from the rain in 2020, 2021. And then it disappeared. And all of a sudden, you have an exceptional drought, one of the worst in state history. Uh, I did not have that on my weather bingo card in 2023. <laughs> Guys, what about you? No, I hear you. I think at one point in October, uh, the river level upriver in Memphis was at minus 12 feet, which doesn't mean it was 12 feet underground. But you know, they, they agree, that navigation agrees that zero is at a certain level. And this was 12 feet below that level, right? And even now, and I, and I checked before we started the podcast, it's still at minus five feet. So it still hasn't recovered yet, even though they, they've had a little bit of rain. And, and to think about this, the flip side, I went back and looked at how bad, how bad it can be. Five years ago, it was 41 feet above that level. 
So you look at from 41 above to 12 below, that's a swing of more than 50 feet of water. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. And you know what? what's surprising is that we had flooding along the Mississippi River in the spring because of the yeah. really big snows up in Minnesota, North Dakota, parts of northern Iowa. I mean, there was flooding along the Mississippi River. There was a flood concern. And so it's just amazing to me how you had these really high river levels, lots of water, and it does flow south. But because it was so dry in the south and there was a little bit of a bump in the spring, you know, like obviously not as big of a crest in the river as what we saw farther up north. I mean, the levels did go up, but it was just incredible to me how quickly the levels dropped over the course of summer. I mean, that shows you how much evaporation was going on, how the river level was doing good. And then it just fell and fell and fell. And so by the time you got to October, you're talking about record low levels in some locations. And so it's just incredible to me how we can go from flooding up to the north in the spring to record low levels in the fall. Uh, again, just how rapid you can go from one extreme to the other. Yeah, when I was looking back at um, at some of the, the rainfall amounts farther upstream in the fall, you know, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, they are all the Ohio River Valley, which ultimately flows into the Mississippi River, and they were all very dry during the fall. So it all adds up or subtracts out, depending on how you how you decide to look at it. There you have it. Our 10 biggest weather stories of 2023. Uh, it was a tough list to make. There are definitely a lot more events we could have talked about, uh, but hopefully you enjoyed it. And uh, here's hoping 2024 won't be quite as wild. Now, before we wrap up, we got another listener question over the holidays. This time, a voicemail from Dan Keller in Nevada, Missouri. He called in wanting to know more about upper-level low-pressure systems. It's a term he's heard watching forecasts, but what exactly is an upper-level low? How is it different from a regular low-pressure system? Another good question. Guys, who wants to tackle this? I'll, I'll take this one here. Um, so, you know, we talk about an upper-level low. We're talking about a trough of lower pressure. So if you think about the atmosphere, think about it... Um, you know, vertically, what you're seeing with a trough is that the atmosphere, and I'm kind of drawing my hands, kind of like bending in towards each other, almost like picture like a, like a whirlpool, right? So at the center of the whirlpool, right, it's, it's lower than the outer parts of it. So when you have a trough, you kind of have this little area that kind of looks like that working through the area, working through whatever part of the country or world it's in. And we talk about this a lot because this helps give us as meteorologists a general idea of what to expect in those areas. So if there's a trough of low pressure over you, more than likely, we're talking about stormy weather, which will then translate to an area of lower pressure at the surface here. And that's usually where you see that big red L on the weather maps. And in addition to that, it could even be cooler than average when you have a trough of low pressure, especially in the winter. Troughs of low pressure can bring those cold shots into the region. So, you know, we use both when we're saying an upper level area of low pressure. That doesn't mean that there is a center of circulation at the surface, but there could be something like a cold front passing through or something, um, you know, like a warm front passing through, something like that. So I think I got that covered. If you guys want to jump in, uh, feel free to pick up where I left off on that one. Yeah, and the fact that it, we call it an upper-level low does mean it's occurring higher up in the atmosphere. You know, normally when we're talking about where the upper-level lows are are located, these troughs of low pressure, we're talking about 
16,000, 20,000 feet up in the atmosphere. So uh, we're talking about upper levels of the atmosphere when we say upper level low. And they're also just larger than comparing them to the, the low pressure systems that people are more common. Yes, the L's that we put on our maps, they're larger and higher up than those surface lows, which are closer to the surface and they're not as expansive. But oftentimes an upper level low will cause a surface low to develop. So they are related, but yes, different. So again, Dan, thank you for calling in with the question. What other weather questions do you have for us? We're on a roll here. Listener questions, back-to-back -back episodes. So give us more. Send us an email at podcasts at lee.net or like Dan did, leave us a voicemail by calling 609-272-7099. Again, that number is 609-272-7099 and the email is podcasts at lee.net. Send us your question and we'll be happy to answer it on our next episode. And finally, we can't end the show without talking about what's coming up next week, but I'm not sure I want to this time because not gonna lie, it's a little depressing. And in this case, the pun is intended because we're talking about seasonal affective disorder. Why do we start feeling blue this time of year? Kirsten, who do we have coming on? Yeah, we have um, actually a behavioral health manager from um, a hospital group in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Her name's Jasmine Wilson. I spoke with her last year actually about this topic. She's very knowledge knowledgeable in it. Uh, and she's just going to give us a little bit more about this information about what seasonal affective disorder or SAD uh, is, because, you know, it's something I think a lot of people can say, man, I, it's been, I don't know, I've been kind of out of it, you know, my, I just feel kind of groggy or whatever, and they blame it on the weather. And I think that there actually is some truth to that. And, and Jasmine's going to go into that a little bit more and let us know uh, if that is, or is it true? I mean, isn't that the the perfect acronym? I mean, for seasonal affective disorder, sad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is sad. Very but we're kidding. we're gonna try we're gonna try and not make it too sad of an episode. It should be an interesting one because it's an interesting topic and very appropriate for the time of year, about the coldest time of the year when seasonal affective disorder really starts to have an impact. So, looking forward to that one. But. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Across the Sky. On behalf of Lee Enterprises and my fellow meteorologists, Kirsten Lang in Tulsa, Joe Martucci in Atlantic City, and Sean Sublett in Richmond, I'm Matt Hollander in Chicago. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you have a great start to 2024, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Jerry University, we've been empowering students to pursue their goals for over 130 years. From innovative degree programs and helpful tools to campus locations focused on creating community for international students, we can help you find your way forward. We even offer international students 25% off tuition on select degree programs. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.